Today's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me is sponsored by FilmCred. Providing new film critics and writers in-depth feedback on their writing, FilmCred is made up of a community of collaborators dedicated to publishing insightful reviews, interviews, video essays, and coverage of film festivals. Visit film-cred.com to learn more. I'm Minna Stein. And I'm Lauren Lloyd. And you are listening to The Movies That Made Her But Not Me, the podcast where we discuss classic films from different generational perspectives. The classic film we're discussing today is the 2004 indie hit Napoleon Dynamite. Kip hasn't done flipping anything today. Look, tonight me and your... Kip, listen! What? Tonight me and your aunt are going to go visit some friends and we're not going to be back till tomorrow. We're getting a little low on steak, so I got Lyle coming over tomorrow to take care of it. Well, what's there to eat? Knock it off, Napoleon. Make yourself a dang quesadilla. Fine. I'll be back tomorrow. So, let's set the scene. The movie is Napoleon Dynamite. It's based off a short film, um, and Napoleon Dynamite hit theaters on June 11, 2004, and it received insanely unexpected success. The budget of the film was only 400,000 and it grossed over 46 million in box office sales. That's great. Directed by Jared Hess and starring John Heater as Napoleon Dynamite, the movie is about a high schooler in small town Idaho and his journey of self-discovery and self-expression. Unable to relate to his uncle and brother at home and rejected at school for being different. Napoleon teams up with a new student named Pedro, and together they run Pedro's campaign for class president. Now the year is 2004, as I said. As Napoleon Dynamite hits the big screen, the Summer Olympics are being held in Greece. George W. Bush is re-elected president of the United States. Facebook is launched. That's crazy to even think that. And the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl with the most controversial halftime shows featuring Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake. Also, in 2004, Minna, I believe you turned four years old. And I am assuming you didn't see Napoleon Dynamite when it came out. So, Minna, please tell me about the first time you did see Napoleon Dynamite. I saw Napoleon Dynamite for the first time many years after it came out. I think what's so interesting about the movie and what one of the main reasons why I wanted to discuss it on the podcast was because the movie did come out when I was four years old and all my peers were four years old, but it had this cultural reawakening in probably 2014, 15, 16, like right in that time, just because it was this indie movie that was a big hit that maybe people who are my age, older brothers and sisters had seen kind of passed on to their younger siblings. Um, And it was just so cool to like Napoleon Dynamite when I was in high school. That was like the mark of being a cool indie kid was that you'd seen Napoleon Dynamite and you knew the quotes and everything from the movie. Um, I didn't see Napoleon Dynamite until I was in 10th grade. Okay. Um, But I will say that I had 
a vote for Pedro t-shirt <laughs> before oh. I had seen the movie, probably like a year before I had seen the movie. Because I remember my friend and I at the time had matching vote for Pedro t-shirts and we would wear them oh. to school on the same day. But I had never even seen the movie before. Did I just the people know what that shirt was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it just was such, it had such a cultural uh, reawakening when I was in high school. Um, not to say that people didn't like it when I was younger, but at least people in my age group, we kind of discovered it when I entered into high school. Mm-hmm. What about the first time you saw it? I loved it when I first saw it. Um, I was uh, surprised at the uniqueness of it. Um, and, you know, I got the humor, and I always think that I'm kind of an oddball, and so I was so surprised that everybody got the humor too. Um, yeah, and then we can talk about this shortly, but when I saw it again, it was slightly different for me. I still loved it, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very straightforward film. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's not, there's not a ton of stuff that happens, mm-hmm. but the vision is so perfect to me. First of all, you just got those credits, you know, that felt alive to mm-hmm. me because those little hands are putting out there with all those little snacks and the... I, and I just thought in like the library card, I thought that was so inventive and so original. It really set the tone for how excited and unique this was going to be. The credits were part of the... I enjoyed watching them. I didn't want to fast forward through no, the credits. They were so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was so... And they were all put like on shag carpeting, you know, or like linoleum. I just thought it was... I'm telling you, the vision from beginning to end, everybody on board had the vision to make that thing work in the cast. Well, can you tell me more about how you, what you felt when you saw it? Blah, 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 blah. Um, the first time that I saw it, I remember being disappointed. Oh. And I think it was because I had heard so much about the movie, mm-hmm. because all of my friends loved it, because I went into it knowing all of the major lines and like hanging out with my friends and going, gosh, geez, and Tina, you fat lard, and like all the lines that everybody knew from the movie. When I, yeah, when I saw the movie, I was disappointed because it wasn't, I think it had been hyped up too much to me that when I finally actually watched the movie, because as you said, it really is about nothing, mm-hmm. I was disappointed. So when I went in watching it the second time, I had a totally different perspective because I already knew what to expect going into it. Mm-hmm. And so I think... A lot of different things about the movie struck me the second time. Less like aesthetic things, because that was very breathtaking to me the first time. More mood things. Things that were going on emotionally with the characters that I may have not picked up on the first time because I was so focused on the comedy aspects of it and how visually different and beautiful it was than anything I had seen. When you first saw it, did you think it was funny? And did you identify with that character? I did think it was funny. Yeah. And I did not identify with Napoleon, but I did identify very heavily with Deb. So what if you had gone to see the movie, um, because you're supposed to like it, right? (laughs) And what if you had gone to see it and you were like, I don't get this at all? The first time I watched it? Yeah. You'd be like, oh my God. I probably would have just kept pretending that I liked it because that was... That was the thing. That was what you were supposed to do. And even though I wasn't super jazzed about the movie the first time that I saw it, I still wore the Vote for Pedro shirt. Mm -hmm. But what you were talking about, um, the movie not being really about anything Mm -hmm. um, and it being a very basic plot, it made me think about why is this movie 
so culturally relevant when it's a story that's been done a million times, right? It's a movie about a guy who is socially awkward and he's a huge nerd. Mm -hmm. And then he reveals his true self to everyone at the end. And they're like, we do love you after all. Mm -hmm. I definitely have a lot of opinions about this, but why do you think it was so successful even though the story was pretty basic? Um, I think because the filmmaker brought us collectively into a world that was so well defined, so well cast, the color palette beautiful, the location, the costumes, the side ponytail, quesadilla, uh, was so um, complete uh, that we could, I, if you could jump aboard, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're in, you're in the, in the character. Because I mean, you look at Napoleon Dynamite, like what a huge name that kid has, you know? And he's like a mouth breathing, like red fro, and he's so mean, and he's so indignant about my, and he's such a liar, which I just loved. And I really related to the whole thing, the lying, you know, all that stuff when you're young, and he even seems younger than high school kids. But I think it's it's the all encompassing world that you're brought into, and you're like I'm on board mm-hmm. because some of it is like is like. He's walking down the road to pick up, I can't remember the name, Teresa? I can't remember the name of the character he's going to take to the high school prom. You know, um, Pedro's cousin's role, you're just like, okay. Like, they're just going by, you know, and you're just on board for the whole thing. So you guys like Pedro's cousins with all the sweet hookups? Here. Is that in my driveway? That's my ride. Yeah, I. That's what I think. You know, because it's not like big, like yeah, sex or like we're getting drunk. It's literally a tiny, tiny movie, very well created. Yes, and I think that's why people love it, and that's why I think I see that you say it is a classic, and. I mean, maybe you're right, yeah. Do you know? Because, I mean, always, there's always an audience that's going through, um, you know, the coming-of-age story. And, and I think this is uh, bizarrely beautiful. Yeah, to go off of that, I think that... I think that in the early 2000s, there was this trend in comedy films mm-hmm. to have catchphrases... And, like, the catchphrase will carry the movie. Not carry the movie, but will bring people to the movie and keep us relevant because there's a catchphrase. Mm-hmm. So whether that's, like, very nice and, like, Borat, you know, these my house. Like, that was in the early 2000s, too. And that is not the reason why that movie is popular, but that's the reason why people now who have never seen Borat before know about it because the catchphrases are still in pop culture today. And I think a similar thing happened with... Napoleon Dynamite, that the catchphrases are still around, even if people had never seen Napoleon Dynamite. But what I think is so new and interesting about it is, one, to write a script, a comedy script like that, that I don't know had ever been done before. I can't say that when they wrote the script, they were like, we're just going to pack it full of one-liners and that'll 
you know, make our movie popular. I don't think that that was their intention, but I don't know of any other movies where the script is just one one liner after another. And like, that's how the characters communicate with each other is through zingers and things that people would want to say over and over again. I have two thoughts on that. One is what makes, yeah. I mean, every writer's thinking like, what, how, what could I write that is, as you say, a zinger? And what makes a zinger? And then, um, and, um, and what makes a phrase something that people want to use again and again? Do you know? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what that, uh, I don't know what makes that. And the thing about these zingers, as you say, they weren't like, I mean, vote for Pedro. Like, that's not a zinger. That's well, I don't know if people are saying vote for Pedro, but I know. Great. <laughs> so what I mean is, like, who, um... They're not over-the-top lines. They're not like, yeah. I don't know what. Like, They're just funny little things that the mm-hmm. characters say. And it's, I don't, and it just all caught on. And maybe more so than any other comedy, you know? Yeah, yeah um, I also think that it has, like, the most one-liners per square footage in the movie. Like, other movies don't have so many lines that you could turn into things that you say when you're in high school to your friends, like, about your tots when you're at the lunch table. And I think that one of the reasons why that happened and why it was so successful and why high schoolers did want to say those things to their friends while they were at school is because the script is so true to the experience of the Hess brothers. Yes. You know, that scene where the guy, the farmer shoots the cow in front of the school bus full of kids and they all start screaming, that happened to them. It's crazy. They saw that. They were on the school bus of screaming kids. And I love the way that was shot also. You know what I mean? You're like, what is that guy doing? He's fooling around and there's that cow. And most people have shown the shooting of the cow. But when that <laughs> bus, it was... And And they all scream. It was awesome. Hess also said that the script was, a lot of the lines were based off, were pulled just directly from things that he and his brother said to each other Mm -hmm. when they were goofing around in high school or after school, when they were just hanging out. These were all things that they would just say to each other Mm -hmm. and things that they would really do together. And I think that's a certain level, has a certain level of relatability because when you're in high school, you see yourself in similar situations as the people in this movie, which makes it really easy to quote the movie because you're doing the same things as them. Like you're eating tater tots in your oh, school lunch. I don't think they said tater. Tots, excuse yes. me. And that's very specific. That is very specific. <laughs> <laughs> tots My bad. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. The other thing that I think made it so unique and such a hit despite having a really basic storyline is being set in the middle of nowhere oh. in Idaho. I don't think I've, well, pre-Napoleon Dynamite, Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen, I've seen uh, teen comedies, coming of age stories that take place in small town USA. Right. But never in the middle of no, I mean, there is nothing around them. Mm -hmm. And this movie really started small town, middle of nowhere. Movies like Little Miss Sunshine and Juno, those movies came out after Napoleon Dynamite. Mm -hmm. It It kind of made a movie about nothing set in the middle of nowhere yeah. sexy because they were like, oh, I can put my movie 
in the middle of Idaho or Wyoming in the middle of a cornfield and people will still watch it if yeah. it's written well. Yeah, because the characters are so specific. Yeah, it's true. There are cows and just wide open spaces and farmers. And then the drinking of the egg. Oh no, that was terrible. <laughs> but we went on the journey. We went mm -hmm. like, yeah, those, those wide open spaces were startling to me when mm -hmm. I saw it. I think it's a different area of teen comedies that hadn't been explored before because there are teens who live in the middle of nowhere who want to see a funny movie about their experience right. and that also made it explosively popular because as much as maybe people who make these types of movies don't want to admit it a lot of kids live in the middle of nowhere in america yeah so next to llamas and cows <laughs> chickens i also thought pedro showing up was so funny. He has no personality. Absolutely. He is a zero on a scale of like interesting, except for my funniest. That's what made him so interesting. The funniest thing that happened in the whole movie, in my opinion, what made me laugh out loud was when he shaved his head because he was too hot. Why do you got your hood on like that? Well, when I came home from school, my head started to get really hot. So I drank some cold water, but I didn't do nothing. So I laid in the bathtub for a while, but then I realized that it was my hair that was making my head so hot. So I went into my kitchen and I shaved it all off. I don't want anyone to see. And then they put a cute little wig on him, which was just a cute little wig. <laughs> I loved that part. But I think in a lot of ways this movie, dis you know, it, of course it's about a nerd mm -hmm. who's discovering himself and who he really is and his friends are discovering who they really are and coming into their own. It's also about, it's about small towns in a lot of ways to me. Um, I kind of was thinking about it in comparison to The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh. Because in The Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack Skellington, the main character, he goes outside of Halloween Town to Christmas Town. I swear this is going somewhere. I believe you. <laughs> He, ha he has to go outside of his home, outside of Halloween Town, to Christmas Town to discover that there is happiness within his own home. That he can find happiness in his own home. And in this movie, I thought it was really beautiful that the characters didn't have to leave their home to discover that there was happiness in their home. Mm -hmm. You know, in a lot of teen movies, it's like, I got to get out of the small town. I've got to make it to the big city. And that's when I'll be happy. And that never crossed these characters' mind. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like Nightmare Before Christmas where the character had to leave to find out that home is what really made him happy. Mm -hmm. They just were at home in their hometown and they discovered through friendship and through staying true to who you are that you make your own happiness wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was really beautiful because, you know, they didn't have to reject what they already had to realize that that was what made them happy. I agree. I was thinking, you know, just about my studio executive days. Can you imagine, like, pitching this story to my boss? Okay, it's a coming of age. There's no drinking. Well, there's no sex. There's no dream about leaving. There's no, like, I want to be a writer. And, uh, and you know, could you imagine? Well, what's it about? 
because it's a coming of age and it's so endearing and so beautiful, but it's not about any of those traditional things. It's about wholesome friendship, which yeah. I thought was really interesting and said a lot about the people who made the movie. Um, that it didn't fall into those classic nerd movie tropes, like Super Bad or yeah, Revenge yeah, yeah. of the Nerds. Like they didn't have to get anyone drunk or rape people or, or exactly drink excessively, like mm-hmm. fight anyone. They just said these people who are giving us a hard time and beating us up, they don't deserve any of our time and we don't owe them anything. Like we don't have to change because these people don't like us. We just have to find the people who accept us for who we are. Well, that's interesting because, you know, he gets pushed against the, you know, when mm-hmm. they, and there's that blonde guy that's always sneering at him and stuff. And he's kind of good, that guy. Um, but, you know, it's, it's weird that Napoleon, he doesn't really take the bullying. I mean, it's not like he stands up and he, he doesn't even bother with that. But he, he doesn't, um, he's not a victim, I guess. I think it's a pretty realistic depiction of one person's experience with bullying, you know? Like, he is being bullied, but it also doesn't define him or who he is as a person. Right, yeah. Well, can I ask a question Mm -hmm. also? Because the first time I saw it, um, I was like, what? And then when the grandma said quesadilla... I was like, oh, okay. And then when she went flying off her all-terrain. You know, I want to see a spin-off movie about her. She's that was great. amazing. She's great. And I was so sad that she left. You know, where did she go? So that the, you know, the uncle could come in. But um, why was it? I cried when he got up to dance. Why? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I guess, I, I think that, you know, watching him through like the crack of the door and he's doing those like, mm-hmm. what is Daquan dance moves or whatever. Um, and you go like, oh boy. And you think he's going to be horrible, of course. And he's not. And he's not great either, but he is down. Do you know what I mean? It's so beautiful. I don't know what it was. I was so moved to tears. And this time again I was. You know, so that's, I don't know. I think, I think every single thing about this movie is just honest. There's an honest depiction of bullying, an honest depiction of the flat-out racism that... Pedro experiences running for president, for school president. There's just an honest description of these relationships in families. And so I think when Napoleon gets up to dance, he's one, doing something for his friend who doesn't believe in himself. And Napoleon's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in you even when you don't, because I care about you and you're my friend. And then also it's just an on him showing his classmates. I'm a nerd and you beat me up and you reject us when we ask you to the school dance and everything, but I don't care because this is who I am. This is how I want to act. This is how I want to present myself. And I'm not going to change that for anybody Yeah. at any time for any reason. Yeah. And I just think that that's a really beautiful way of showing it because they could have done it a million different ways. You know, he could have confronted the bully or had... He could have been the one running for president and he made a speech about it. But instead, he's just like, I'm going to show everyone that I don't care what they think about me through dance. And I think that's really cool and unique. And it's something that makes the movie really special. So it's it's just so sweet. But there is a a kind of a through line, you know, with the dojo teacher. And he's like, I'll show you with me. You'll learn the wisdom of a man. You know, he's like choking a woman, which is horrible and funny. 
Um, you'll learn to have self-respect. And you'll also, like, have your friends back or something. So when mm -hmm. he meets Pedro and he's like, yeah, well, we're friends now, right? Do you have my back? And Pedro's like, I don't know. But he did have Pedro's back. Mm -hmm. And so that through line about self-respect yeah. and having your friends back kind of did play through. And I, I like that. I liked all the meat they ate, too. They did oh, eat a it. ton of meat. That uncle was a big meaty. Okay, can we talk about Uncle Rico for a second? Because he yes. was... I The first time I watched the movie, did not even remember that that character was in the movie. Me neither. The second time I watched that movie... It's all about him. I was... <laughs> now, this is the moment when I was moved to tears, was about Uncle Rico. I thought he was such an interesting, beautiful character. Oh. A few different things were going on with him. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that I think, you know, we meet him and he's making homemade football videos. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking and you don't even know who he is or what his deal is because you just see him living in a van making homemade videos in the middle of nowhere. Then he's talking to his nephew Kip and Kip asks how his girlfriend is doing. And he says, she left me because I'm stuck in the 80s. Yeah. And you're like, what happened in the 80s? And then he goes on to tell us the story about how he was the football star and they went to the state championship and the coach didn't put him in in the last quarter. Oh, and so it ruined their team. He didn't win states and his life was ruined because he never got to go pro. And that was his dream and it didn't happen for him. And I just thought, and the moment that I cried was when he bought the time machine online oh, and he flipped the time to 1982, which is the year that yeah. the state football championship happened. And then Napoleon tries it and electrocutes him. And he's like, this piece of crap doesn't work. And then the uncle comes in and he's like, it's clear he's been crying. And he's like, I could have told you that that wasn't going to work. Like he had already tried to go back to 1982. Oh, I just found that so so emotional. I was so heartbroken over it. And I thought that it was a really interesting and realistic portrayal of someone who feels trapped by their small town and somebody who thought, as many people who live in small towns do, sports is my only way out. Sure. That's the yeah. only thing that will get me out of here. Yeah. And that didn't happen for him. And so he felt discarded and also trapped. Mm -hmm. And like only going back to 1982 and fixing that one bad thing that happened to him, that would make him happy and that would make his life better. And I just thought also about like people who were the most popular person in high school. You know, he, I don't know if this is true, but he presents himself to be the star football player. And then, you know, you graduate and you don't get to go pro. And now he's just some guy who lives in a van who makes homemade football videos trying to get recruited. You know, he mm -hmm. went from being all that to nothing yeah. and he just feels really discarded. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was an interesting contrast between Napoleon and Uncle Rico to have one person who is showing you, I'm going to make my own happiness even though I hate my surroundings and I'm miserable at school and at home, mm -hmm. but I'm gonna find happiness within myself. And someone else who was like, someone else who is showing us that that's the only way that you can make happiness because he's not looking for it in himself. He's trying to buy a time machine to go back to 1982 yeah. and that's never going to happen. Even if he had gone pro, he probably wouldn't have been happy because he doesn't have happiness within exactly. himself. Well, let me ask something. Um, when you were watching him the second time, okay, and you're watching those, do you ever watch football, football? 
Not really? I do a bit. I, I, I don't know what's become of me. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, and so when you watch the, he looks like a terrible quarterback to me. <laughs> okay? And I, I don't know if he is or not, but he's kind of like scrambling. He throws one this way or that <laughs> way. And I'm thinking, was he? No wonder he wasn't put in in the fourth quarter. Right. So I was thinking, oh, maybe... Maybe he was like third string quarterback who never got to play, and if he had only been put in in the fourth quarter, right? I don't know how uh, embellished or how big that fantasy or dream is. It, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, but it does seem very embellished because I find it hard to believe that a football coach. Now maybe this coach had no clue what he or she was doing. However, I feel like a football coach wouldn't bench their star quarterback. Right. <laughs> When, because Rico says the coach knew that if he'd put me in, I would have won the game. And I, you know, not putting me in is the reason that we lost. I'm like, okay, cool. So I'll go with you on this thought train. Why would a coach who knows that their only option is to put you in to win? Why would they not do that? Exactly. So it makes me, that's why I feel so pulled to this contrast of finding happiness within yourself. Because it seems like even if that had happened even if he had been put in his big dreams of going pro probably wouldn't have happened anyways no yeah and that's even sadder yeah but i really liked him but it's such a weird thing that i did not remember him either i didn't yeah i think because when you watch it he doesn't really and he's such a sad character he does say some silly things i'm sure but he doesn't really have any big comedic lines that i remember Mm -hmm. not like the other characters what I loved about him was physically, like when he was like at a restaurant or whatever, he'd be like this, trying to make his arm, his biceps, get his arms crossed, and he's trying to make his biceps look big. You know, when they go to that funny little diner, you know, hey, he was always positioning himself so his body looked footballish. <laughs> what about um, Kip? I'm kind of unsure of what his purpose is other than to be funny. So unusual. Uh, yeah. But he was very, you know, uh, serious. I mean, he, like, you know, when Napoleon was saying, like, oh, look at this picture. That's my girlfriend. Is she hot? Pedro said, you tell me. I bought her some of these photos. Anyway, and in Napoleon's lying, and you kind of delight in the fact that he's lying, mm-hmm. and it's sad also. But um, Kip was like, nope, we're chatting. I've got a girlfriend. And he believes it. And I believe it. He's chatting with hot babes all day. With hot babes all day. Don't be mad at me because I've got all the hot babes. And you think, how are they going to do this? How are they going to find someone? And that foot comes off the bus and they pan up. You know, and it's like a wild, sexy black woman. And I did not expect that. And then he gets all like rags and... (laughs) I was just like, yeah, I don't, she's, sure, I'll take the jump. First of all, she's so beautiful, and so that's really funny because he's such a nerd. But she had that big gummy smile, which yeah. so, which took the edge off her sexiness right. made her more approachable. Right, she's just too. so sweet. And then also, you know, going back to our conversation about not having to leave to find happiness, it was interesting to me that she came to him first. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he made it, he was like, all right, I'm not meeting anyone at home because I'm 32 and I don't have a job and I live at home. So I'm going to go online and chat with hot babes all day so I can find someone who makes me happy. And then she comes to him. What about those moon boots he wears all the time? 
Excellent. Oh my god. I love what them. About all of the clothes. Even Rico with his like kind of powder blue mm -hmm. three piece suit that he looked kind of interchanged. The clothes were just spot on. I thought um usually when I'm watching a movie and there's cultural pop culture references in it, I'm like, don't mm, you guys shouldn't have done that. You know? Because I think that it dates a movie. Like if I was making a movie right now and I put a reference to Kim and Kanye getting divorced. In 20 years, people are going to be like, what is yeah, this yeah. reference? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and so I usually, my advice that no one asked for would be to stay away from cultural references because it really dates a movie. Here, however, they did the exact opposite, which was lean into the early 2000s and make everything so early 2000s that the movie becomes a time capsule of 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. I, rem I was transported into wearing my hair with a bunch of little clips, like wearing a tank top, a white tank top underneath everything that I owned and like wearing those shirts that had um, like an undershirt sewn into, like a, what is it called? Like a Dickie? Dickie, oh, yeah. <laughs> when I was little and I just felt completely transported. And so I thought that, that was really successful right i mean it was chocked full of pop culture references but it didn't matter because that was something that made the movie so special was that it was so set in this time period what were the references you mean visual or visual yeah, yeah there yeah. weren't really any pop culture references yeah. other than like the vhs tape that he learns to dance from but that wasn't really 2004 that was more 80s so I don't know, technology though, like the computer, the chat rooms, um, all of that, the, the clothing, sure, that sure. the Deb going door to door, oh. selling, um, selling keychains and little tchotchkes and the uncle and the, the brother getting involved in selling Tupperware door to door. It just all felt like yeah. we were trans, they transported the audience into that time period. Well, what about that side ponytail? I love um, it. I loved. I don't think I ever wore my hair in a side ponytail only because I have too much hair. So sure. it would have looked a little silly. I don't even know how you get it all over the side <laughs> like that, but I'm thinking I might try just for <laughs> But I remember somebody making references before about, oh, you know, a side ponytail. And I'd be like, hmm, um, is that a 2004? Is, did people have a side ponytail back then? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so then they, we stopped doing that? I think we finally realized <laughs> that it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> like 30 years into doing side pony we were like maybe we should stop yeah, it's too hard. <laughs> yeah. but she had a good tight one um okay what about the other scene i know i'm digressing here but with uh deb is that her name the side pony mm -hmm. deb? deb what about <laughs> when he goes and he talks to her for like the first time and she's a big like piece of food on we crumb on her lip huh, are you drinking two percent milk because you think you're fat you could drink all of the milk because yeah <laughs> And the liger, that was super cute. Tots, awesome. I also loved, and this is like kind of off, it is how John Heater played Napoleon with his eyes closed so much of the time mm -hmm. and the way he spoke. And I just can't imagine another actor getting away with that today. I think, I think a lot of the things that we love about Napoleon in Napoleon Dynamite are because the character had been workshopped before in the short film. So I watched the short film. Oh, you did? Yes, it's nine minutes long. It's called Palooka. Yeah. Napoleon's name is Seth. Hmm? 
And it was a student film that was produced um, at Brigham Young University. It was directed by Jared Hess and it starred John Heater. They met um, in the Brigham Young University film yeah, program. Yeah, yeah. Something? So that's where they met. They did the film. Um, it was shot in black and white. And everything from Palooka was used in the... It opens the same way with him waiting for the school bus, getting on the bus, that kid next to him saying, what are you going to do today, Seth? And he says, none of your business, gosh. And then he takes his little toy and throws it out the window. It's, it's the, exactly the same, except for there is a last scene in the short film that takes place in a convenience store. And they cut that in the movie. But yeah, I just... I think that, I mean, obviously... The character was played very similar. Seth was very similar to Napoleon. Mm -hmm. They had the same curls, got the big glasses and everything, but he definitely is doing a more exaggerated version of that character in Napoleon Dynamite than he was in Palooka. So I think mm -hmm. they made the short film and they were like, how can we improve on this for the movie? Obviously that makes sense. Um, and so the character kind of became like, just go for it all the way. Mm -hmm. Like you're doing a great job now. So just whatever you think. I just think that they got to play around with the characters in the short film so that when they made it on the big screen, they kind of knew already what was working and what wasn't working and yeah. what they wanted to exaggerate and what maybe they wanted to pull back. Mm -hmm. um, Hess was doing missionary work in Illinois and he met a guy on the street whose name was Napoleon and the name just stuck with him. And then he came up with Napoleon Dynamite, which is also the nickname of Elvis Costello. His pseudonym was Napoleon Dynamite. Really? But Hess says that he didn't know that. Oh. So. Yeah, he probably didn't. And he brought it <laughs> with his wife, right? Yes. Yeah. The Hesses. Like years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right out of college. Yeah. So do you think, do you, do you know the answer to this? So he did this short for his college, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, he took the film and what, he shot the film to studios? Or he, do you know what the process That was? I don't know. I know that, <clears throat> excuse me, after the movie came out and it went to Sundance, it was like purchased and distributed at Sundance. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who produced it mm -hmm. originally. I know Fox bought it, but I don't know who owned it before them. Oh wait, are you, you're, are you saying that um, the short was bought? No, the movie. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. But I don't know who produced the movie. Yeah, who but that. Yeah. I also don't really know anything about, and maybe you can um, speak to this. I don't really know the process of turning a short film that you made in college into a, a feature film. If you saw, obviously you haven't seen it, but like if you saw a short film that was a short version of Napoleon Dynamite, does that help you see oh, yeah. the vision of the movie? It's a great calling card. Yeah, because you're like, see this, I'm gonna make it longer, and this is how I'm gonna do it. You know, because you see the tone, you see the characters, you see the whole vision. Super, super helpful. I was just wondering like at what point he thought, this is a good nine minutes, I'm gonna to go to my neighbors and raise money, you know, I'm gonna do a budget. And mm -hmm. I just, I'm just curious about that, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what happened. Because we were talking earlier about the, the script and like the idea of the movie being kind of vague in general, but like yeah. also not falling into any tropes. And so I was wondering if maybe the short film helped him oh, for sure. produce the characters. It's the, yeah. Because it's really about characters in a very specific And the short film had really strong, just as strong characters yeah. as the yeah. movie did.
So this movie is one of the most successful indie films ever released. Um, I think that it definitely kickstarted a series of indie hits. It piqued people's in audience's interest in indie films. Mm -hmm. We had Nacho Libre, which also was Hess. I like um, directed by Hess. Yeah, I do too. But I think that Napoleon Dynamite kind of start started this trend of these hip indie movies that are really aesthetic, uh, like Juno and Little Miss Sunshine and Nacho Libre, and sort of like Wes Anderson type movies that are a little mm -hmm. bit more grunge and less perfect. Like you you see yourself in them more than you maybe do in a very stylized Wes Anderson movie. This is like a stylized, small-town America, grungy-type movie. Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket, that came out before, right? Bottle Rocket came out in 1996. Okay, yeah. So it came out way before. Yeah. But I think that, you know, Bottle Rocket probably led to a more style, and Rushmore even, led mm -hmm. to a more stylized-type movie where there was a lot of emphasis on aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And then that turned into Napoleon Dynamite, which was a small-town stylized heavy aesthetically pleasing movie which then led to an explosion of grungy small town movies about people who are just living their lives and we watch them and it's very visually interesting but it's also got really rich characters in it but i'm just wondering what you think about this movie's longevity like what is it a timeless movie do you think do you see it as timeless yeah mm, i see it as timeless because the the characters are so well defined and so relatable, and it's like a like a time capsule too, like you said. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. And do you think of it as a classic? What is a classic? What is it? I don't. I mean, I know, but I don't really know. Is it a classic? The thing is that it's so it's such a simple, and I know that no making no movie is never simple. But this is such a, like a weirdly simple story that's so unique that when you see it, it is what it is. You know, it's not like, oh, you go deeper and you, it just is what it is, but what you see really works. So I think it's timeless because of that. The, the last episode we were talking about classic and timelessness in terms of technical impact. Like, this movie is a classic because it inspired a chain reaction of r romantic comedies that were all made very similarly to this movie. Like, this movie was made and it became the formula for the movies that came after it. You know, I made a movie called Mermaids, right, with Cher, Winona Ryder, and Christina Ricci. And it was about a family of women dysfunctional. And I remember people saying that that started a whole, like, dysfunctional family that doesn't mm -hmm. really work. And but yeah, so yes. Okay, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's what we were talking about on our last episode. And I think that this movie is a classic. In those same terms, it did inspire a new subgenre of films. You know, we were talking about the grungy stylized small town teen movies mm -hmm. those largely became popular and being produced more frequently mm -hmm. after following the success of napoleon dynamite so i think in those same sorts of technical filmmaking terms mm -hmm. 
It is a classic. Mm-hmm. I also think when I'm thinking about it in terms of timelessness, I'm thinking about like the cultural impact versus the technical impact. And I think that this movie has both. It inspired a new subgenre and it also impacted culture in such a way that 15 years after it came out, mm-hmm. no, not 15, 10 years after it came out, mm-hmm. I knew quotes from the movie, but I had never seen it before. And I think that that makes it timeless because I'm sure that I will pass those quotes on as I reference the movie with my friends and with my younger brother. And that will just keep inspiring people to know where those quotes came from, watch the movie. I think that it exists in this like weird quotability success. And I know that that's probably not what the filmmakers wanted the lasting impact of their movie to be. They probably wanted it to be the story right as all filmmakers would want Mm -hmm. but i think that really the genius of the movie is making it be so quotable so that everybody knows about the movie regardless of if they've seen it or not if i were like 2021 and seeing it for the first time i think i would have been as moved by it and touched by it do you think if this movie do you think this movie could have gotten made when you were younger do you think it would have had the same kind of impact then than it did today? Um, I think it could have been. I think that if it were made, it would have been um, successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that in the 70s, there were much more uh, filmmaker-driven stories, and it was really, Hollywood at least, at that time, was much more about um, really creating not so much art, like high-minded, high but really uh, having really being cutting edge, pushing the envelope, really making interesting storylines, fresh characters. Yeah, so I think it could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it would have had an impact. I don't know. Yes, I think it would have had I don't know how big, but yeah, I think it would have worked then too. The best movies were made back then in the 70s. You were minus 30. Is that right? <laughs> yes, negative 30 years old. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me. Join us next week when we sing out just because we want to sing out and discuss the 1971 film Harold and Maude. Thank you to our sponsor, FilmCred, an online film publication publishing insightful film and television reviews, interviews, video essays, and coverage of film festivals. Thank you also to Antonio Ortiz for composing our theme and all other music on this podcast. And lastly, thank you to you, listeners. We started a podcast email for listeners to email us and provide feedback, comments, questions, and anything else you want us to know. Be sure to email us at moviesmadeher at gmail.com. And please follow us at moviesmadeher on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date on all episode releases, the movies we'll be covering, and all things podcast-related.